I'd like to talk this morning about a theme which I think follows from the session last time with Sylvia and some of the continued feelings or emotions that different people may have in relation to the elections. You know, and it could be on either side. We, we, you know, people who are still somewhat distressed or sad or overwhelmed, and people who are very, very content and happy and um, maybe irritated by all the people who are distressed (laughs) or whatever. But it's it's to look at the our theme of our practice, which I think gives us a way of understanding and being with sometimes very strong emotions and and sense of difficulties, which is the way that we make this very deep commitment to practice. And then having made that commitment, we act, but in a way we let go of the attachment to the outcome. So we could say it's this paradoxical balance of deep commitment to practice to our core values on the one hand, and a letting go of attachment to the outcome on the other. And that's what I want to explore because I think it's a very powerful way to understand our practice. It's very relevant to right now, and it's very difficult to practice like that. But I think this is what we're called to do. So that's what I want to explore. And I want to acknowledge that people still may be having very strong feelings. I, I, I work with a few small groups, and people in the groups, uh, several of them were still just, you know, ask, how are you doing? I'm just terrible. You know, I'm really distressed. I'm really sad. And again, there, there's a range, and some people aren't, aren't as affected for whatever reasons. And I was just reflecting on this from, from uh, yesterday, just how just... We, we are emotional creatures, and we have sometimes have these strong feelings. It can be so hard to um, really see clearly and act wisely when we have very strong emotions. Now, I was just reflecting yesterday. Um, I had a day that had some difficult aspects to it. I went to a meeting which felt really lousy for two hours, and then I went to a medical appointment, and I had to wait an hour and a half, and then... I was supposed to have dinner with a friend, and it didn't work out um, because we got our signals crossed or something. So just just these small, everyday ways that things don't go quite right can really um, have an impact, right? Just these very small things, oh, you know, can, can tie into whatever uh, deeper sense of um, um, low-grade annoyance there is <laughs> or... Or, or difficult sense uh, that we're very, we're very vulnerable, and some, some of us more than others, and we have these um, strong emotions. So how do we, you know how do we deal just with the the ups and downs, just of daily life? Not to speak of, you know, a major external event, a major uh, election result, a certain outcome that some of us may want, and some some. Uh, some may not want. Probably most people, judging from the polls of people who go to Spirit Rock, most probably did not want that outcome. <laughs> you know, but but not not everyone. <laughs> so, just want to acknowledge that these these are very you know 
because these strong emotions can kind of paralyze us, can't they? They can paralyze us, they can leave us really feeling disoriented, uh, not knowing how to uh, act, forgetting our deepest values, and feeling very confused as if we're as if we've regressed to, you know, whatever, three or four years old or something, where we're helplessness or just feeling all I want is what? Um, someone to hold me and tell me it's okay and then I can get back. And so I just want to acknowledge that's the reality of our of our experience. And so how to how to in the light of that understand this practice of uh, working with a very, very strong commitment to practice and non-attachment to outcome. Non-attachment to outcome doesn't mean that we don't have very strong intentions for certain outcomes to occur. But there's something about, uh, as it were, in ordinary English, it would be we totally do our best and then we let the, the chips fall where they may. But there's something that, that's paradoxical that is a very deep teaching here. And I wanted to explore some of the ways that this gets expressed in, uh, in actually from different traditions and then to talk about what this might look like as a practice and what it might look like in particular in its maturity. What does this balance of strong commitment and non-attachment to outcome look like? Because here, for many people, there's been an outcome that's not what you wanted, right? It's not what you wanted. Many people were even very involved with, with action, and it's not what you wanted, and it can feel crushing. You know? There was... Um, I got an email from, uh, some of you know, Starhawk. Um, and this is her... This is how she began her, her email, sort of her group reflections that uh, two people like the day after the election. On election night, I felt an intensity of grief, rage, and anguish that rivaled any of the worst nights of my life. And she, go, and she goes on and it says, it, it's enough to challenge one's faith, not just in Americans, but in the essential goodness of human species, of the human beings. Can we apply to join another species? <laughs> Wolves, perhaps? <laughs> and, and so how do, we, how do we work with those, those ups and downs? How do we work with that? And this, this teaching about very, very strong commitment, strong action, and then letting go of the uh, results is a very powerful teaching. It's expressed in, in many, many ways. One of the classic ways it's expressed is in the Bhagavad Gita, in the, in the Hindu tradition. And it's expressed there, as some of you know, as a teaching about action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. It was really the motivating idea for Gandhi and many people. And this is, this is one way that it's expressed. This is, from, this is from the Gita. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work, victorious one. The same in success and misfortune. This evenness, that is discipline. One of disciplined mind in this world cast off both good and evil deeds. Therefore, train yourself in discipline. Discipline is true skill and works. So it's not so much that we don't intend good actions, but there's some way that one makes the intentions and then keeps on going, basically. And there's, um, there's a very 
uh, pretty powerful expression of that from an activist, some of you may know, named Vandana Shiva, who is a, um, what, a, one of the main persons who's tried to work for sustainable uh, economics, and she's, she's uh, based in India. She is Indian. And this was, this was uh, from an interview that was uh, given of her. She, she was asked a question in an in- interview. Um, Every time I've heard you speak or met you, you've had so much energy. What keeps you so alive? And she, and she talks about this quality of commitment and non-attachment for someone who's incredibly committed acting incredibly, continually. Well, it's always a mystery because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged, but this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do, because these are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make. And you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You hear that? Total commitment with total detachment as to where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world, and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them. But then you have detachment, what we're calling non-attachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me always to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. Yeah. It's very similar to what uh, T.S. Eliot said once. He said, uh, ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. Ours is in the trying. The rest is not our business. And we can, again, look at it in different ways. Another perspective that says something very similar is to have us appreciate, maybe appreciate the journey more. You know, we're always preoccupied with the outcome. You know, I can remember as a kid always, you know, you sit in the back of the car if you, and you say, when are we going to get there? <laughs> when, are you, when are we there? And there's this perspective about commitment and non-attachment outcome would have us actually appreciate the journey more. Appreciate the moment-to-moment, uh, moment-to-moment uh, movement. And maybe even appreciate the drama, the fact that we don't always get what we want. It actually makes it more interesting, doesn't it? (laughs) Doesn't it? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, we won't take a vote on that one. (laughs) So it's, um, okay, it may or may not make it more interesting. (laughs) Uh, But potentially it might, you know, it's... um, it reminds me of, I think it was Rama Krishna's answer to the question, and this is actually a deep one, I wasn't meaning to go quite this place, but I think I will. Um, Rama Krishna was asked, why is there evil? 
And he says, to thicken the plot. <laughs> hmm. Um, so there's a way in which we can um, appreciate the journey more, appreciate the ups and downs. It really is kind of against maybe our conditioning, isn't it? Our conditioning says, I want this outcome, I want this outcome. What would it be like to relax that some and appreciate the moment more and appreciate the ups and downs, which actually means to appreciate the downs as well as the ups. It, it, as I'll explore in a moment, that takes a certain amount of faith because part of us, when we have the downs, think that the downs will be with us for a long time or forever. And, there, there's, and so there can be a deepening of uh, faith. I think a deepening of faith is necessary for this perspective. So we can have this long-term perspective and we say, oh, down, you know, didn't get my outcome. Oh well, just keep on going. You know, that's, I think that's, that's a very simple attitude, but that's hard for us, isn't it? That's, that's hard, that's not, that's not very easy. I think some of, the, um, some of the qualities which really help us to have that perspective of sort of the, the uh, long-term commitment and then letting go of the uh, attachment to the outcomes, I was thinking that I was listening this morning to uh, music some, like early in the morning. There was, um, uh, they had a Bob Marley song on the radio and they were playing, it's the one where he said, talks about, um, you know, forget your troubles and dance, you know, forget your tribulations and dance. And there was just something in the music which is incredibly lightening, just can let go of the attachment to the outcome. Just It's sort of an invitation to, to um, shift perspectives, to get a sense of what your deeper values are, no matter what's happening. And music can do that. I was also thinking that humor is very good at that. I brought my, um, my clown nose, you know, and some of you know I have a persona, which is... Uh, Garbanzo bean. I have an alternative <laughs> uh, persona, and humor. Hum, go into character a little bit here, but humor is humor gives very much spaciousness. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe sometime I'll do I'll do a a longer. There, there's actually a sub persona named Guru Guru Garbanzo bean. <laughs> Who, who likes to answer questions without any guarantee of satisfactory answers. <laughs> and might, maybe that garbanzo bean could make an appearance in the next few weeks. Because, um, huh? No, well, I have a t- prepared talk. <laughs> but, I don't know if that was me or garbanzo bean, but... Um, anyway. So, so humor, but maybe, maybe later, we'll see. Um, so humor is very is a very powerful way to have that perspective because the hum- I mean, it's no coincidence that humor is, is the kind of survival strategy, isn't it? Partly, like I was listening a week or two ago. I, I don't know if some of you heard. I was at Black Oak in Berkeley and heard Gary Snyder, who's one of my uh, heroes, and he was uh, the poet and environmental activist and so forth who lives in the um, around Nevada City. And he was, he was in a very jovial mood. It was a week before the election, and someone asked him, you know, you're, you're, you're in such a good mood. You sound really optimistic. Are you optimistic about things? And do you see really good things happening? And you're, you're, you seem like, you know, really kind of happy. 
<laughs> and, and he sort of looked up kind of quizzically and, and said, um, humor is very important. <laughs> humor is very important, and, and I, I like to cultivate humor in these times. Um, so it's a kind of it can it can give the space because what the you know what the the problem about the attachment outcome is we get totally kind of collapsed psychically on the outcome right this is everything we don't have the space humor gives the space music can give the space and teachings can give this give that space there's also the wonderful teaching um, from the Buddha very very similar one of the core teachings and one that I remember the first time I heard it had an incredible impact on me is the teaching of the eight worldly winds. Do you remember that teaching? Or some of you? Yeah. The Buddha says we're basically as if we are tossed around continually by eight winds. And what are the winds? Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disgrace, or sometimes called disrepute, and then perhaps the biggest, praise and blame. And the teaching is that these are happening uh, continually for us, and they, in a way, uh, keep getting us caught in attachment to outcome. They're really expressions of how we get attached to outcome. We get attached to outcome in terms of whether it's a, we want pleasant experiences, we want to gain something or to have something positive happen, we want praise, and maybe we want fame within maybe uh, at least certain circles. We want, maybe it's, you could translate that as we want people to like us or think we're good or whatever. Yeah, maybe recognize us, know that we're a significant being on this earth or, or whatever. And in a way, identifying these factors gives us a very powerful uh, orientation to practice because this, this is really precisely how we get caught in outcomes. All we have to do is look to those eight worldly winds and ask ourselves, how do I work with gain and loss? How do I work with praise and blame? How do I work with pleasure and pain? You know, how do I work when I have to wait an hour and a half for my medical appointment? You know, or I go to a really bad meeting. You know, how much does that toss me around? And so this teaching is, is really an invitation for us to make the worldly winds more part of our practice, because we can have the perspective of strong commitment and non-attachment to outcome, but the key is actually doing the practice to see how we get caught in outcome, or in how we maybe lose a sense of commitment. So it's not just so much having the orientation, but it's doing the practice of working, let's say, with the worldly winds. So it could mean remembering when we have... Um, a loss, or when we have um, criticism, to say, oh, it's eight worldly wins practice time. <laughs> and to really, and there's a way that we can really uh, start taking that more seriously as practice. And it, it's, it's, it's very, these, the conditioning is so strong in our experience. I can remember many times when, uh, when I've been doing something, and you know, in a, sometimes in a teaching role or organizing role, and I w would get feedback, and it'd be like 80 or 90 percent really, really positive, and maybe one or two people would say something negative, and sometimes 
my mind, <laughs> obviously the true one, the others were just trying to be nice, <laughs> right? And, and so, and is this familiar to anyone? <laughs> so, so that becomes a practice. We have to really keep looking at that uh, quality of how we get caught, how we get caught in outcome. You know, and I was thinking there are at least um, three ways, three sort of deepening levels of practice with the eight worldly winds. The first of them is really just noticing when they occur. You know, so it's really noticing, oh, that's pleasant. Oh, that was, that was praise. Oh, that was criticism. That was blame. And starting to notice, this is the mindfulness work, just starting, this is the, our noting. You know, it's because typically something happens and instantly we're caught, right? Instantly caught up. We don't, and, and it's not easy, you know, someone, you know, someone criticizes me and for me to say, okay, Donald, I am getting criticism. It is very likely that my typical defense mechanism will come into play <laughs> or something like that. Um, but to actually, to actually um, be mindful of these, thing, of these things when they're happening, to have a little more mindfulness is key. This is how we work through this attachment to outcome. So it's also to, um, when they're occurring, the first is naming, sort of naming and noting that these are happening. The second would be to actually look more carefully at, the, at what we do what do we do with pleasant and unpleasant? What do we do with gain and loss? What do we do with praise and blame? What do we do with fame and disrepute? How much are we caught up in that? This is not easy work. And doing this kind of mindfulness work and inquiry is very, it's really, I think it's at the heart of our practice. It's really the slow looking and inquiring and going deeper and noting and working with friends and working with community that really frees us from being quite so much in the grip of these forces. It's not easy work, it takes time. And, and it's kind of ongoing. You know? I, I remember meeting a monk, asking a question about the progression of practice, and maybe he had spent too much time by himself, but he, he admitted, <laughs> he admitted in a, in a kind of a discussion, he says, you know, I've been a monk for 30 years, and I still want people to like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very honest, right? It's very, it's very sweet. And, and I said, he said, I still sometimes get caught. I want people to like me. Isn't that sweet? It's very, and it's, it expresses a truism, I think, about our, about our nature. And so as we go deeper into it, then we can start to actually even look more carefully. The first way of working with the worldly winds, just being the noting, the naming. The second being the closer look at how we actually, the whole range of how we react and respond to the worldly winds. And the third being starting to really look more closely at how we get triggered, how to almost bring it to slow motion. Someone says something critical to me. What happens internally? Can I really look closely at that process and, and almost bring it to slow motion? Typically, someone says something critical and we instantly react, right? We just go into a reaction and we're kind of lost for, you know, 10 minutes, an hour, a day, two weeks, three years. <laughs> but we, we kind of get lost, right? And so this practice is, the core of this practice is the mindful 
deconstruction of our reactive patterns. That's the core of this practice. Using the mindfulness and using community and using like-minded people to be able to actually look very closely at how we react. And the eight worldly winds are a beautiful way to um, remind us to look there because those are some of the places that we get most caught. So we get caught by being attached to outcomes. I think that in a, in a way we can also get caught in the opposite way. I'm talking about this balance as strong commitment and then non-attachment outcome. I think we can also get caught by not having much of a commitment, by sort of pulling back. So it's, we can get caught, as it were, in both ways. We can get caught by being attached to outcomes. We can also get caught by uh, removing ourselves from committed action, maybe out of fear, you know, out of not wanting to have the disappointment of uh, outcomes happen that we don't want or the ones that we want not happening. So we have to look also at how we get caught by disengaging or by staying on the sidelines or by being fearful of acting in certain ways, whether it's to act in the world or to act in a relationship or to do something that we know we really need to do. You know, and I think that that's also a way that we can uh, come into imbalance. And so the last part I want to talk about is really what does this balance look like of, commit, of strong commitment, non-attachment to outcome look like um, when it's mature? Or so what are some hints of what uh, a mature balance looks like? And I was thinking of a, a few different people as I was reflecting on this. Um, you know, one of the people I think of is Thich Nhat Hanh, who everyone knows who Thich Nhat Hanh is, right? The, wonderful Vietnamese teacher, writer, poet, activist. And Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, really brings the emphasis on the present moment. He, he helps us to have that a deeper sense of the present moment. He also is very much focused on how, we might say, the process is as important or more important than the outcome. So he talks about peace as being every step. He says, peace is every step. Has a book called Being Peace. And there's a passage I wanted to read from this uh, book, uh, Love in Action, which is subtitled Writings on Nonviolent Social Change. And this is what he says about the, the actions that he was part of um, in Vietnam, which you could say in, in some ways, he's, you could say they didn't succeed, right? He didn't exactly have the outcome that he wanted, did he, in, in Vietnam? He's, he's in exile. He can't even be in his own country. You know? Although I think, he's, I think there's, he, he has some chance now to go back. But, but there's, for, for what, 35 years, he couldn't even be in his own country. The, you know, he, people went into exile. He, you, in some ways, you, couldn't, you could say that, the, outcome that he, the outcomes he wanted didn't happen. But this is what he said. Despite the results, many years of war followed by years of oppression and human rights abuse, I cannot say that our struggle was a failure. The conditions for success in terms of political victory were not present. But the success of a nonviolent struggle can only be measured in terms of the love and nonviolence attained, not whether a political victory was achieved. In Vietnam, we did our best to remain true to our principles. We never lost sight that the essence of our work 
was love itself, and that was a real contribution to humanity. It's an emphasis on the on the on the process and on uh, being careful about this attachment to to outcome. One of the ways that this gets gets learned, I, I think of a, a friend named uh, Larry Rosenberg that some of you know. Some of you know probably from uh, reading some of his books. He's a teacher on the East Coast in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Larry told me these one, this wonderful story. Of, um, which really helped him work through attachment to outcome. And, and maybe you, we all have similar situations. Well, Larry was at the time uh, studying Zen, and he was scheduled to lead a four-day Zen retreat, which was supposed to happen right after Christmas. And at the Zen center, uh, everyone went home except for him because he was Jewish. And Jewish people typically don't go home for Christmas. <laughs> and, and so Larry... Um, but also, maybe because of the timing, uh, no, one had, no one had signed up for the retreat. And so Larry went to the Zen teacher and asked him, I suppose we cancel the retreat. And the Zen teacher said no. And no one had signed up for it. And the day that the retreat was supposed to start, um, no one had signed up for it. And the Zen teacher said, you lead it anyway. <laughs> and he came before, and he, he it was a four-day retreat. <laughs> and he went to the hall, no one was there, and he sat and walked, and he said when he started to give his Dharma talks, he felt a little bit silly. <laughs> but he did it, and he said for the first day, he felt really, really dumb, and he was just kind of just thinking of excuses for why he would leave. And around after about a day, some, something happened for him, and he learned something, uh, very deep, he said. He learned something. He felt. He suddenly felt the dignity of what he was doing, and the uh, way that it reflected commitment. And the and he kept through. And he said, ever since then, he's never worried about numbers, and about who comes or the sort of the outward success or not. He said something got knocked out of him, doing that. Some kind of attachment to defining success in certain limited ways. And it was I, that story has totally stayed with me. You know, and I, when I was a, a young teacher, and I, was teach, I remember I was teaching as a, a graduate student. I, I myself had a class where no one came one day. Of course, for me, <laughs> it was actually not a problem. I just went home. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's, there's something about that story which really uh, tells us something like the, like what Suzuki Roshi says about the Bodhisattva says, no matter what happens, even if the sun should rise in the west, the bodhisattva's course is the same. There's something about that, that strength of commitment which, which I love. Um, I think I'll just end with one other story, which is that an aspect of this very strong commitment and non-attachment to outcome is that we also, I think, um, can start appreciating the uh, mysterious nature of change and the way that actually we, we often don't really have a very clear idea of how change is occurring or even how the outcomes that we want will, um, will happen. That there's something very, very mysterious about change, particularly large-scale change. You know, and I, I just wanted to tell a story that I, um, that I heard from uh, Daniel Ellsberg, another person who... Uh, 
leaked the so-called um, what? Pentagon yeah, leaked the Pentagon Papers in, I, think, I believe, 1971. And there's a very powerful story, which was in 1960, uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, was in Kyoto. I think he was in Tokyo, actually. He was in Tokyo, and he was doing uh, research on nuclear weapons for the U.S. government, you know, basically doing studies and so forth. And he had um, read in this book called The Dharma Bums by Jack Kerouac. He had read about the temple in Kyoto. And he went to the temple on one of his days off and just went there. And later he went to a bar. And at the bar he met uh, Gary Snyder, who was kind of a... He was, I think, kind of more or less... Um, doing Zen training there, which for him included going to bars. <laughs> and he met, uh, he met Gary Snyder. This was in 1960. And they had a great talk, and Snyder invited him to his cottage the next day, and they spent a day together. And um, Ellsberg later, later said that he was so impressed by the sense of practice and by Snyder's kind of moral example and the way he was living his life, that this stayed in his mind as a very strong influence and was actually pivotal for him releasing the Pentagon Papers, like over 10 years later. And so we don't always know what our, the effects of our actions are. And it's really uh, opening up maybe more to that quality of faith and sort of faith in the long-term um, opening of our being, both personally and collectively, that I think uh, comes as we work more with this balance of um, strong, very strong commitment and then non-attachment to action. So I'll stop here and, and leave us open to exploration together. So, thank you. something like that question yourself. <laughs> Raise your hand if you have something like that question. Okay, very good. Um, so we might probably, we could explore this for the next day or two. <laughs> okay. Um, in some ways, the question 
as it were, in the collective domain is not different than it is personally. I think that's one thing that I have found more and more, that the, the, the transformative principles are the same for inner work as for outer work. And so, um, in working with anger, I think there's no... Um, the emphasis in this practice is always to um, allow what's there to be present. So there's no... It's not usually very skillful to suppress anger in general. You know, if you're a brain surgeon and you're about to do an operation and you're really angry about the election, yeah, okay, suppress it then. <laughs> uh, but, but generally speaking, uh, to allow the anger to be present, the question is, is, is almost always how to work with the anger rather than to have the anger be there. So it's more a question, what do you do with the anger? How do you work with it? And here, it's, um, it seems really important to do a few things. And one of them is just to be present to the anger oneself, be present internally to the anger, and actually feel it, give it space. One, what we often do when we're not really mindful of our anger is we just go into reaction right away. So I do not think that is necessarily very skillful. It's more because if we can work with the anger in a deep way, which involves a lot of different uh, tools, I think ultimately we can keep the energy of the anger and the inside of the anger. I think uh, anger carries some important um, uh, energies and insights. And yet it often is manifest in a way which can be destructive. You know, both to oneself or to others or to people. It's very easy to just, uh, because one's angry, just to get angry with people who are close to you. You know, and I, the, um, later in this uh, letter from Starhawk, she talked a lot about how, what she, she talked a lot about how uh, one of the most difficult things she said was people uh, having so much frustration that they take it out on people close to them on their allies, you know, which, which happens, I think, when we more are reactive with our, with our anger. So the question is, how do you work with the anger so you preserve the energy? You know, because in, in anger, there can be a lot of very positive uh, qualities, but it typically shapes itself uh, as uh, in a polarity and wants to basically, again, not, I think not all anger does this, but typical anger when we express it First of all, it's polarized. Typically, I'm right, you or they are wrong. It's polarized. It's self-righteous. It, and it, in some way, it intends to harm the other. That, uh, none of those are very helpful. So what are the positive qualities of anger? There can be a deep sense of justice. There can be a lot of care and love behind anger. You know? uh, and there can be a lot of insight, for example, insight into injustice. In, in anger. So the question is, how do you purify the anger so you get the good stuff, which helps you to act more effectively, and you work through the, uh, the polarization, the self-righteousness, the tendencies to harm? That's, so that's kind of the direction. And how do you do that? Um, the individual mindfulness practice does that. It works with that individually. Uh, how do we, I think we can also do it uh, somewhat interpersonally and collectively. Some of the work that Joanna Macy teaches has ways of working with anger in a group or in a, in a larger setting that, that 
allows the anger to be there, but in a way works through it. You know, there are other techniques that are used. We were talking about this actually with the uh, precepts discussion this morning. Like, are there ways of expressing anger? And I think there are in certain therapeutic techniques and certain um, uses of communication. So I think some aspects of nonviolent communication, some of you know with Marshall Rosenberg, can one express the energy of the anger? You know, I'm feeling really angry because of the greed or whatever, and have it not be polarizing, not have it be self-righteous, and not have it be intending to harm. I think there's some techniques that can use anger in that way. But that's kind of a bit of a long answer. But it's, it's a, uh, if I had to give a, um, a quick answer, because it's a very deep subject and complicated. But, but, not, but just reacting, I think, gets us into the harmful territory. Yeah, you're welcome. Please. <coughs> That's an important point, and some of you know um, George Lakoff's work. People know his work. Um, he's been one of the people who's talked about this most eloquently. He has a recent book, what is it called? How Not to See an Elephant? Don't Think of an Elephant. Don't Think of an Elephant. So he, he's a linguist at Berkeley, and he's, he's pointed out really how, um, in one sense, the um, the talk about values has been monopolized by, as it were, one side of the political discourse. And the other side, you might say the so-called liberals or progressives, have more or less played along with it and have not been clear about their own values. And so, um, yeah. so I, th- I think it's... Very, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of confusion. Um, out there about these questions, and I think I think the world is waiting for a much clearer expression of um, deep moral and spiritual values that may may look a little bit different than uh, the moral majority. Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I was just uh, thinking, getting back to what you were raising about what you were feeling, and I, I then I uh, in, in the beginning uh, up inside, I, I'm not sure what your name is, but you were talking about the low grade. Um, Rose, yeah. Agitation. Annoyance. Yeah. Annoyance. Yeah, I mean, I, there's so many words that I could use to say, but the low-grade hostility or just the total, just sheer, just like, you know, just just startled at what has been, is going on, yeah. that outcome. Yeah. But I think, as Sylvia talked about this last week, and I you know, so much agree with this, is that it, I think it's very important to feel yeah. what we feel. Yeah. To feel the grief, to feel the sadness, to feel all that we feel, um, so that our wisdom does come through. Yeah. And um, I guess I was feeling like with your talk today uh, in the beginning, it was like 
I want to feel yeah. what I feel, and I can't just say this is the outcome and oh well. I just you know I'm yeah. not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's helpful. I do feel really yeah. That that that's helpful in a, a few ways. Did you want to say something? I was I was just thinking that's that's helpful. Maybe as um, maybe really implied by my talk, not to sort of prematurely go to a way of thinking about it, but opening to the emotions, and then it's at a certain point the um, the teaching of this balance of commitment and non-attachment to outcome can be helpful. Because it's really about looking at what the emotions are and just going into them and giving, giving room for them. But at a certain point, one can get lost in them. You know, at a certain point, or, or can start turning them against oneself or others. So it's, it's, it's really um, how do you balance that openness to the emotions with some wisdom orientation. And, and Typically, it's to give room for the emotions to be there for a long time, for as long as they have energy. But at a certain point, particularly if they start, like you were, you were saying, if they start turning into harmful action, either towards oneself or others, then maybe they've, then it's time to work in a different way. Um, yeah, but it is, it is um, a lot of fearful scenarios possible. A lot of dangerous things happening. Please. I just wanted to share from ordinary yeah. what somebody's doing to spread our values. Um, uh, I heard Michael Megler, who's the chair of the Peace and Conflict Department at Berkeley, yeah. is working on, um, well first he's trying to create a, a department of peace. Yeah. And then also um, in June, I guess he's going to um, have a teach down. He's trying to create a peace and conflict department in colleges and universities, mm-hmm. maybe high schools, I don't know, but all across the country. And he's organizing a teach in, and I think um, Thich.com is going to be the mm-hmm. speaker. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's coming out of mm-hmm. so there's a lot. Um, there's a lot that's happening beneath the surface. I think it's very much like you were saying. It's um, to present um, some very clear moral and spiritual alternatives, and for us, it can be very much based in in practice and based in Buddhist practice. I'm I'm near finishing a book that connects individual practice with social change, so I've been kind of like <clears throat> immersed in that for a year and a half and trying to couldn't finish it in time for the election, <laughs> but. Um, 
So now it's very much on my mind is trying to trying to get this out there, trying to get some alternative visions out there. And and I think also there could be visions that actually maybe bridge the so-called two sides because I'm not so convinced that you know I before I came to California I lived in uh, Kentucky and rural Ohio for seven years, and what I tended to find was that uh, there were not very many alternatives there, sort of moral and spiritual alternatives, and that when people had them they often um, were not so caught up in the more narrow or rigid positions. Um, that's what I personally found. I had a lot of debates with fundamentalists and you know, taught ethics classes in which we went into all these issues and so forth. And um, I found that people were actually, when they really had careful discussions, they were way more, particularly the younger people, were much more um, open and... Um, respectful of different views. Um, but they're just, people are very conditioned by the, um, by the media and the available ways of framing things. So I'd, I'd be confident about having other, other voices gain more power in those areas. Please. That's a good point. It's really, I didn't give so much attention to that in the talk, but where I talked about how you can, we can get confused both in attaching to outcome, but also in lacking commitment or, or being whatever, complacent, resigned, uh, thinking that letting go means that uh, the universe will arrange how I get a paycheck. You know, I mean, how many, I have quite a lot of friends who have thought that, <laughs> thought that the proper interpretation of the meditative lifestyle means um, I wait for the money to come in and don't do a thing. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of, uh, yeah, I think that there are actually quite a, a number of possible ways to distort both sides of this. Um, but, it, but it's true, and I, I think we may, I don't, I don't know if, uh, we probably are a prey to both of them, aren't we? You know, that, that sense of using the teaching of letting go or non-attachment to outcome as as a rationalization maybe for complacency or not caring or being distanced you know, or not really uh, being connected with what's difficult or painful. Or I think there's so few models yeah. not being attached to outcomes yeah. for people that are deeply committed and then the outcome isn't the one yeah. that we're wishing for. It's hard to find a model of well, now what? Yep. It's hard, yeah. And so we do have some models. I mean, people. Um, I mean, I think. I think. I think this comes up whether you focus on individual practice or people out there in the world. But I, I, I tend to think of people like Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, in Vietnam, or Gandhi, or King, or Aung. You know, think of Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. Mm-hmm. You know, people know her story of someone who 
has been facing, sometimes it seems almost single-handedly, this very oppressive group of uh, sort of authoritarian rulers called SMORC, right? The state, what, Law and Order Restoration Committee or something, or the council or whatever it is. And think of, think of, how, think of how, that, how this issue might appear for her. People, I think people know somewhat of the story, just continually, she just is continually dedicated, right? And she says, I couldn't do this without my practice, right? to, really, to really do that. Or, um, I don't know, there are people, there's a, there's a man who's influenced me a lot, who, who died about 15 years ago, named uh, Miles Horton, who founded, co-founded the uh, Highlander School in Tennessee. And he's not so well known probably out here, but he it was he it was a a school founded in nineteen thirty two that was for adult education and they were very um closely aligned with the uh labor movement and then the civil rights movement and then later the environmental movement in Appalachia. And he um in fact it was uh Rosa Parks uh, went to the school before she refused to get off the bus and in the 1950s. And Martin Luther King went there. It was one of the few places in the South where blacks and whites could actually stay together for a period of time. And he was so successful that um, the state of Tennessee shut down the school in 1960. And about two months later, it was burned to the ground. And within about uh, three months, he had started it again in uh, Knoxville, and the school is still going. And he, it was burned to the ground, shut down, and he was like this, like this mountain guy, kind of like a wily coyote figure who just said, "Okay, I see your move. Here's what I'm going to do." And just, you know, just, and just continued. He wrote uh, his autobiography is a beautiful book. The title of it is really an answer to the question. It's called "The Long Haul." <laughs> And it's about um, how do we have that perspective of, of the long haul, that long-term perspective, and just have that energy that just says, I keep going, okay? This happens. And I really, I open to it emotionally. I work with it. And I am careful, like your question, about using that sense of the long haul or non-attachment to outcome. But it's more like... It's, it's a tricky thing. Maybe that's not. The, maybe we have better language than non-attachment outcome because it's really about this deep commitment that keeps on going, and uh, we try to have certain outcomes, but if they don't happen, we keep going. That's really what it's about in our practice as well as um, collectively. So I think in terms of time, we better better close now. Partly because, and remember that. People are um, coming in about 11.15. So let's just sit quietly for about 30 seconds and, and reflect. So if there was in the meditation or the talk and discussion, something that was very helpful or insightful. Let that be present. 
If there's some intention that comes out of the morning related to perhaps being with difficult emotions, strong emotions like anger, or working with this balance of commitment and non-attachment to outcome, or whatever other language works for you to describe that. Might be some way of practicing with the eight worldly winds. So if there is an intention, let that be present. So we dedicate the morning's exploration and sharing to the well-being of all, knowing that we practice for ourselves, but also for others. May we share the fruits of our time together with all with whom we come in contact and give the fruits yet more widely for the well-being and the healing and the coming home to ourselves for all beings. Thank you.